0: Well, this morning we continue on in our uh, series on Ephesians, so you know where to turn in your Bible, the book of Ephesians chapter f- uh, six, actually. Um, as we start, I want to ask you a question, uh, or I want to see what your response will be. What, is, what are some of the most common questions asked when you first meet somebody? What are some of the common questions asked when you first meet somebody? Might be um, "What's your name? It's a good one to start with. Uh, then, where are you from? And then sooner or later, you get to what do you do for a living, right? Or what do you do? Where do you work, right? Who do you work for uh, is a very common question that we ask when we meet somebody. It's because a lot of times who, what, where we work is part of our identity to some extent. It, we spend so much time there. We put so much effort like mentally and physically toward our jobs, toward our employment. It's an important part of who we are. It's an important part of, 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 of what we do. Well, today's passage that we're going to see, we're going to throw you for a hook here. You're going to see the title of it. It's going to say bond servants or masters or slaves and masters. And you're automatically going to think, well, what does that have to do with the introduction? Um, But I think in our passage today, we're going to look at um, where the Bible speaks to slaves and masters. And we're going to take that and we're going to boil it down to see that there's a principle that's taught in this passage that it can apply to all realms of our life, not just our employment but to a lot of realms but it's it's hidden here in this passage a passage that as we read it is probably going to fall on our ears a little weird this morning as we read about slaves and masters um, based on the history in our country it's going fa- to sound weird on our ears um, but I trust that as we get through this and we look at this you're going to see God's wisdom and how he provided this passage to us and how it applies to our lives even today sitting here in a country where, praise the Lord, there is no slavery um, that, that, like what we saw in the past. So let's read this passage and then dig in to see what the Bible has to say about us um, in, in this passage. So Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, and it says this. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service. As people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whatever he is, uh, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So I think before we get into this, we've got to talk about that word "slave." We've got to just right up front, not kind of push it to the side, but talk about it right up front. Um, that word "bond servant" that you see um, in the ESV is translated "bond servant." In the Greek, it's "doulos." It can also be translated "slave." It may be um, it may be translated as "servant" or "bond servant" or "slave." Maybe in your when your Bible. Um, so when we think of slavery, that obviously brings back. Uh, Thoughts for us. We, get, we have a picture of, of 18th and 19th century slavery that happened in our country. That's the picture that we have. But the, but the description of slavery here and, and the context in which Paul's speaking to is different from that kind of slavery. It's different from that kind of slavery. It's estimated that about one third of the Roman population when this was written would have been considered a bond servant. This would have spoken to about one third of the population, not not a small sliver of of the people would have been considered bond servants. Also, the the slavery, the bond servant um, relationship that went on here was not based on race. That's a really big difference than, than the slavery that existed in our country. This was not based on race, but it was more of an economic relationship with people. It was those who had power, typically expressed through money. Uh, they would that, That's how the bondservant and masters were, were designated, those who had power and those who didn't, those who had the money and those who didn't. Um, People in this time could also sell themselves into slavery or into bonds, into being a bond servant um, because it was a way to make up for money. It was a way of, in in some sense, taking out a loan, right? We, um, when we need money, we go and sell ourselves to the bank, right? We we say, hey, give me some money and I'm eventually going to repay that. Well, the way that they could do that was say, I'm going to, here's my, 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 my resource, my body. I'm going to work for you for a certain amount of time. And then after that certain amount of time, that person would be freed. Um, People, not only could they sell themselves into slavery, they could also earn their own money, um, own their own property, and eventually buy their own freedom. That is not the kind of slavery that we've learned about from our, our history books in this country, right? So it's, it's different. Many of these laborers were not just uh, day laborers who'd work in a the field. They were skilled. They could be musicians, physicians, accountants. Um, all kinds of skilled, educated people would be, could and would be considered bond servants at different times. They were educated. They could own their own property, earn money. Um, it's even said that some slaves own their own slaves, or own their own bond servants, people who were indebted to them. So this slavery that's mentioned here is clearly different than what would be brought up in our minds, um, based on our history in this country. Yet, yet, it's still slavery. That's why Paul brings it up, and that's why he even speaks to the masters here, don't treat your slaves or your bond servants harshly, regardless of how... Much different it is from our picture of slavery, it still was slavery nonetheless. Slaves still, a lot of times, lived in less than ideal lifestyles, less than ideal living, uh, living situations. And masters could treat their slaves, treat their bond servants very poorly. Um, they could have um, given them poor work conditions or maybe unfairly compensated them. Or in some situations could have even taken their life if the work wasn't done um, to, their, to their liking. So this brings up our question, and this is probably a question that's brought up to a lot of you. Maybe um, if you're watching videos on YouTube or TikTok or whatever that might be, this might be a question that's brought up as a charge against Christianity. Hey, why doesn't the Bible speak against slavery? Why doesn't it say something about this atrocity? Right? Why doesn't it do that? If it doesn't do that, well, then God's not good. The Bible's not a, a good thing to, to practice and live for in our life. Well, I think that's a fair question to ask. Why doesn't the Bible condemn slavery the way that we would? Well, number one, in the Bible, God never commends slavery. He offers regulations for it, both in the Old and New Testament. So he regulates it, but he does not commend it. He never says, this is a good thing, you should do it. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, he speaks against the kind of slavery that comes into our mind of kidnapping and selling. It's spoken directly against in the Old Testament. That was not something that you could do. And also remember that we can't expect God to address 1st century slavery the way that we addressed 18th century slavery, because it's two different subjects. It's two different things. God... And I think here we're going to see his wisdom. God tends to address things at the heart level rather than the governmental level. God tends to address things at the heart level rather than the governmental level. Um, one pastor named Alistair Begg, he offered two, different, two, two, kind of, two categories for why Paul in this passage and why God maybe in, in, in this setting didn't speak out against slavery the way that we would want him to. One is a practical and the other is a, the other is a theological. In the practical sense, Paul wasn't able to just say to all these bond servants who would be a third of the population, hey, rebel against your master and and, and leave them and don't, don't work for them anymore. Um, that would have, one, the economic structure couldn't have handled it and two, that would have given Christianity the the stain of what it was accused of already. If anything went wrong in the Roman government, who did it? The Christians, right? When Rome, when, when the city burned, uh, the, Nero blamed the Christians for it. That's historical fact. So the Christians already had this subservient um, uh, perspective from from outsiders. These these Christians are atheists. Did you know Christians were called atheists in the Roman in Roman times? Why? Not because we didn't believe in one God, but because we didn't believe in all of the gods, right? So we were considered atheists. They said, these atheists, they just want to rebel. They just want to overthrow, right? So if Paul were writing letters, spreading that around saying, hey, let's overthrow, that would have potentially snuffed out Christianity quicker than what it did. And it actually grew in the situation. So ultimately, I can't, or that's the practical side of things. Theologically, though, is what we're going to get to um, in a moment. But I can't say for sure, I can't say this is why God didn't say this against that. I can't say that for sure. But I think in this passage, as we, we dig, dig into it and look at slaves and masters, as we look at the relationship there, I think we're going to see God was wise in the way that he did it. Not saying here's a policy that you need to go and post on the walls, but here's a heart change that exists in you and live it out. And ultimately, slavery cannot survive where the gospel thrives. Ultimately, slavery cannot survive where the gospel thrives. It was actually gospel-centered thought and theology that pushed people like William Wilberforce and those people to speak against slavery in England. It was actually Christianity that pushed those people to speak against it, not to use it to further enslave. So where the gospel thrives, slavery is not going to ultimately survive. It's actually going to Dissipate because of, I think, the principles we see here in this passage. So with all that being said, what does it have to do with us today right here? So I'm going to say this. Uh, we're going to take this passage, we're going to look at what it meant for those original readers, those slaves and masters originally, and then we're going to see how a principle was given to them that can also guide us uh, in our relationship. Because really what it boils down to is this. How are Christians supposed to use and relate to authority. How do Christians use authority given to them and properly relate to authority over them? That's what it all distills, boils down to. So let's look at this. First, number one, the first command that is given in this is to bond servants, to slaves. It says, obey with sincerity. Obey, obey with sincerity. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart is what it says. The fear and trembling spoken of here. Um, I think is not the idea of shaking your boots before your masters, but to um, have a healthy respect for acknowledge the the authority that is over you in this relationship. And he says to do it with sincerity. Another way to translate that word sincerity is simplicity or purity or in single mindedness. Paul says, hey, as you're living your life, do it with single mindedness, wholeheartedness, meaning whatever it is that you're going to do. It needs to be for that one purpose of glorifying God singularity of heart, sincerity of heart. The one thing that you should do is to glorify God. So Paul's saying in, this, in, in some way, form, or fashion, you can exist within this relationship and glorify God by doing it. Whatever you do, you should do it with sincerity. He goes on from there and says, not by way of eye service or people-pleasing. Man, people-pleasers. Uh, he's saying don't be a people-pleaser to these, to these bond servants, People-pleasing, I think, is bad for a couple reasons. Number one, people-pleasing is prideful because it turns men into gods. Um, Because you say people-pleasing, the idea of this, when I say people-pleasing, I mean they would work really hard while the master was around, and then when he was gone, you know, the the mice come out to play, as they say. You're going to work really hard in front of the boss, but once the boss is out of the room... That's when you play Tetris or whatever it is on your computer where you're not going to work hard. So he's saying, hey, don't be people pleasers. Don't just work hard while the master's around. And then when he leaves, stop working because that makes it to where your heart's only seeking to please your master when he's looking, right? It turns him into the person that's going to reward you. And also this, it's stealing or it's lying. It's being dishonest, right? You're taking from uh, the person that you owe something to. So people-pleasing is prideful and it's stealing. If you only work when your master's around, you're you're being dishonest. And people-pleasing is short-sighted, I believe. People-pleasing is short-sighted. You can't see the full picture. It's God who you're really serving, not your master, which is where Paul goes next. You are not just a master or a servant of your earthly master, but you're a servant of the ultimate master. The word here that's translated master, I'm not sure what's translated yours, it's the word kurios, Greek, which is Lord. So Paul is doing a play on words. He's saying, obey your earthly Lord in the way that you actually obey your heavenly Lord, the real Lord, because he's saying, ultimately, when it all comes down to it, you are not an employee or you are not a servant of this person of your master you're ultimately a servant of God and as you serve your master it says not by way of people pleasing but rendering your service or doing the will of God as a bond servant of Christ Paul was saying you can obey Christ by obeying your master you can obey Christ by obeying your master. Again, that's a category that is it's odd to us because of our contextual uh, mindset. But for these people, they could obey, and we can obey God by obeying a master, right? And that comes from knowing this. He goes on to say, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he's going to receive back from the Lord. So he's saying, who's the, who's the one who ultimately compensates you? It's the Lord, And in this situation, think about this, the slave can't lose. If he has a great master and he serves him well, well then good, that that good master is honored. If he has a poor master, but he still serves him well, he actually condemns the master. Because the Lord is the one who sees their heart and sees the actions of all. And he'll condemn that evil master. So the slave in this situation, he cannot lose. um, Because he sees Christ as his ultimate Uh, He's a servant ultimately to Christ, and Christ is his ultimate master as a bondservant. What goes on from there, um, after talking to uh, bondservants, he talks to the masters. He says masters in verse 9 says masters do the same to them. So everything that's just been said about bondservants, that's what masters should do. They should live with sincerity of heart, knowing that they have a single focus, which is to glorify the Lord. Whatever, that, whatever they're doing, they need to be glorifying the Lord in doing so. He says, he tells the servants, don't be people pleasers. And he tells the masters, don't be people punishers. He says, stop your threatening. Punishing people is prideful because it turns yourself into a God. Um, the master who's saying, hey, it's my right to dish out and deal out threats and punishments – That puts him in the place of God, not um, God in the place of God. He says to the the master, do the same thing um, in humility, sincerity of heart, not threatening, but as a servant of Christ. Even the master is a servant of Christ, doing the will of God, uh, doing work out of goodwill, knowing that God is their ultimate master and judge. He goes on to tell the master's knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. God doesn't see white collars and blue collars. God doesn't see uh, masters and slaves, especially, and get this, especially within the church. This letter that was written is, is labeled the book, uh, the, the, the book of Ephesians or the letter to the Ephesians. It's a church. They wrote to the First Baptist Church Ephesus, Ephesus, and said this to the people that were going to be inside of that church. This, these two groups of people, slaves and masters, are sitting in a congregation. Um, maybe it looked like this. Maybe it looked more like a house situation. But it was Christians. He's speaking to Christian bondservants. And to Christian masters. And saying, live your life as a Christian. Now... We, I've mentioned to you, this is this is a mini-series that we're doing within the book of Ephesians. It's the relationship series where God is talking or speaking to us about the three kind of most important relationships we have with our husbands and wives, with our children within our home, and then our the people who have authority over us in an economic situation, right? But what's said right before all of that? If you're there in your Bible looking at Ephesians 5 through 9, go back a few verses um, to uh, all the way back into chapter 5 to where it says this um, in verse 18, chapter five eighteen, It says, and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit, but be filled with the spirit. This is a command he gives. Be filled with the spirit and live your life. Encouraging one another, um, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Submitting to one another. Look, that's what it says in verse 21 of chapter 5. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul takes this idea that you are filled with the Spirit. Here's what it looks like to live a spirit-filled life. You're you're with joy, you're thankful, you uh, encourage one another with, with songs, and you submit to one another. That is... At its essence, that's part of what living a spirit-filled life is, submitting to one another. And he says, look, this kind of submission happens within a marriage, right? Uh, Husbands love their wives and take care of them as Christ takes care of the church, and the wives submit reverently to him, right? In the parent-child relationship, right, parents should not be uh, provoking their children to anger, but the children should submit and obey their parents, and the same shape that is in, within the marriage, within the family, and now within this, um, this economic relationship is, hey, there's authority that's given by God. You should submit properly to it. And if you do have authority, you cannot wield it for your own desires. If nothing else, you should come through this like, little stretch of alley coming out saying, man, if I have any authority, I have a responsibility on my life to use it right. You know, he says to, 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 to the husbands, you've you got to love your wife like Christ loved the church. And he says to the parents, you've got to raise your kids in the admonition of the Lord. And he says to the, these masters, there's no partiality. God's going to judge you as much as anybody and potentially harsher because you have the responsibility. So as we come through this, this, this relationship alley and we come out on the other side, the idea is this. Christians should recognize authority submit to proper authority, and also wield that authority well. Why? Because ultimately, all authority is given by God. That's what Romans 13 says. It says we should submit to the government because God gives the government authority. God gives them the sword, right? There's no authority on heaven and earth that is not given by God. Now, obviously, governments, husbands, parents, employers they can all use authority poorly they do we've all experienced probably all three of those in some form or fashion whether on a small scale or on a larger scale we've all experienced that but know this god is the ultimate judge god is the ultimate judge and he sees both uh what the master does and what the bond servant does and he judges both what the master does and the bond So as we roll out of this idea of proper authority or submitting to it, what does that look like for us? Well, again, not only is the situation in Rome, the slavery situation in Rome, different from what we saw in the past in our country. It's also different from what we have right now. There's nothing past or present that quite looks like this one-for-one relationship with what Paul's speaking to. But he's distilled it to this principle of saying, whatever you do, do it as if you're working for Christ. And I think that can be taken and applied to and extrapolated out our work situations. I think we can look at this and the closest relationship, the closest thing to this is the employer and the employee. And now that starts to hit all of us, right? That, that, that touches all of our lives. We've at, at one point, we've either been employed, currently employed. Maybe you even employed other people or you do employ other people. Maybe you lead people. So I think this passage speaks to us, speaks to all of us. So if you're an employee, you should obey or uh, you should uh, obey with sincerity, sincerity of heart, recognize and respect the authority that's over you. This might look like a boss. This might look like um, the leader of your organization. This might look like a teacher in a classroom. This might look like a coach on a, on a team. Uh, whatever authority has been set over you, recognize it and respect it. And obey that authority as you would the Lord with sincerity of heart, not just doing work while they're looking, not like a people pleaser, but as if God's actually watching and seeing because he's the one that rewards you. So as you go to work, don't go to work just focusing on getting your gold star on the wall as the employee of the month. No, you should go to work as if you're working for the one who made all the stars in the sky and he's going to reward you in a way your employer never could. There's no compensation like what the Lord can compensate you with. Also, as you go to work, I want to encourage you to change bosses. Here's what I mean by that. When I worked at Allstate um, during my my last year at at seminary, the first thing they tell all the millennials coming in is, hey, if you get tired of this job, let us know, and you can find another job within our company. So their, their phrase was, you can change jobs without changing companies because millennials are silly and we don't care about retirement, we'll switch jobs four or five times. I don't know what's wrong with us, um, But the idea was, hey, we'll leave really quick. But they said to us, you can change jobs without changing companies. And I wanna say to you guys, you can change bosses without changing jobs. What I mean by that is this, you need to realize the job you're doing It it doesn't have to be for that earthly master. You can continue doing the same job you have but change bosses and realize I'm actually working for the Lord. Uh, As as I am teaching kids in school, I'm working for the Lord. Um, As I'm building new coaches, I'm working for the Lord. As I'm handing people money out of the bank, I'm doing that for the Lord. Whatever your job is, you can view it in such a way as I'm ultimately working for the Lord. And he's going to reward me in ways that this boss never could. Have you ever felt like you're doing so much work at work and you're not being appreciated for it? Man, we've all done that. We've all been to where, man, I feel like I do so much for this job. I feel like I do so much for this company. And my measly paycheck and this measly bonus doesn't quite compensate me. Well, just know that the Lord sees that. He knows knows the work that you're doing and he will compensate you. Don't be short-sighted like people-pleasing. But look at the long run to realize this life is not that long. It's short, and it won't last forever. And there is a reward coming for those who serve the Lord with a sincere heart. So Christians should be the best employees at their jobs, not the worst. Uh, Bosses should be looking for Christians to say, hey, I I can pull a Christian in here and put them in here because I know they're going to be honest. They're going to work hard. They're not going to cut the time clock. They're not going to clock in or clock out later, early, or whatever. They're going to be honest with their job and with the money um christians should be the best employees so let me encourage you on monday morning when you go to work or whatever you're going to be doing monday morning pray before you do it say god help me to be the best employee i can not just for the sake of my employees and my employer but for the sake of you for god's sake let me do good at my job bosses if you're in here and you're a boss, recognize all of these things apply to you as well. Um, you should have a singular heart of glorifying the Lord, recognizing that the authority given to you is only temporary. It's limited. And it does not, it, it does not and will not last forever. You're not supposed to use it for your own gain, but to, for, the, for the benefit uh, of those around you and for the glory of God. And recognize that the Lord expects you to treat employees the way he treats you. And recognize... Uh, that you are really an employee of the greatest master of all. So as we come to the end of this, I hope you can see that it breaks down the wall that exists between the secular and the sacred. There is no wall that exists there between the secular and the sacred. It's not there's church stuff I do, my relationship with the Lord, and then there's my work, and that's different. No, those two things overlap for you. If you're a Christian, you don't say, I get to live how I want at work. But I'll be good at church, right? Don't be a people pleaser to me or the people in this room. Be a a God pleaser and realize that there is no wall that exists between the secular and the sacred. Christ makes every part of your life spiritual because all of life is about Christ. And know that he is our greatest example of a servant and a leader. He was a servant leader. His example of being a, 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 a leader is that he served his disciples. He got down on his knees and washed their feet He was the perfect example of a servant leader. And he was also the perfect example of how to relate to authority. Jesus didn't get caught up in trying to correct the Roman authorities, right? He was focusing on a heart change. He was focusing on what he was going to do on the cross. That one singular focus of his heart was that he was going to set his eyes on Jerusalem, walk up that hill, carry your cross, die on your cross, pay for your sins that he might rise from the dead. That was his singular focus. That was the one thing he focused on. And now because he's done that, that kills and destroys the sin and the pride in our lives and fills us with the Spirit that enables us to live Christian lives. Not only as we gather in this room, but also as we go to work on a day-to-day basis. Christ's death... Is to be lived out in our lives, not as people who are always focusing and complaining about woe is me in my job, but saying, what can I do to glorify Christ with this job that he's put in my hands temporarily? How can I use that to glorify God?